Hey, it's Katrina Flowers here with you. So last week we published back-to-back episodes featuring Dr. Nick Coatsworth. As I said, Tom, Jan, Annika and I have spoken to Dr. Nick many times and we just felt it was time to get him back on the briefing to dispel a series of vaccine conspiracies once and for all. These are things I think all of us have either wondered about ourselves or we've been asked about by well-meaning relatives or people that you know. So things like when to get a booster shot, does the vaccine contain a tracking device or um, increase your chances of receiving 5G, Um, you know, the dangers around vaccines for kids and when you can get a COVID shot after you've actually had COVID. So as a special one-off feature, we've put these two briefings back to back for you. Antoinette Latouf and I spoke with Dr. Nick last week and we're so pleased to bring you a special Sunday edition of The Briefing. Dr. Nick Coatsworth, thank you so much for joining us again. You've been so generous with your time. Thanks very much, Katrina. Great to be back. I guess the first question that I've heard again and again and again is, were the COVID-19 vaccines developed too quickly to be safe? Oh, first I'd say I understand it. It does appear to be really quick. But what you've got to remember is that there's been two major coronaviruses in the past 20 years. One was the first one, SARS-1, in the 2000s, and then we had SARS-CoV-2. So there was already a lot of technology in the pipeline developing or developed to put towards these vaccines. And then what actually happened was that there was so much investment from governments, from private organisations, pharmaceutical companies themselves, combined with a very ready pool of people to take the vaccine in the trials. So all the steps that were taken to actually get to the vaccine were exactly the same steps that we would have taken to make any vaccine that we get in our arms when we're kids. It's just that the steps were able to be done so much more quickly because A, we had a head start and B, we were able to invest very, very heavily with a large pool of willing volunteers to to get the jabs. So everything was done, you know, in a much shorter period of time, but with just the, the same thoroughness that any vaccine development would go through. Now, we're going to address some of the things and I guess I refer to it as, you know, what Dr. WhatsApp has been diagnosing and circulating. Do COVID-19 vaccines contain a microchip or any form of technology tracking? That's some of the misinformation I see getting circulated quite a bit. Yeah, I know. And I think the core of this disinformation is really about people's sense of loss of control, wanting to attach meaning to something that's very difficult to understand. We've never been in a pandemic before. We don't understand the implications for it, but we do know that it causes us to lose control of our lives. And That sort of sense of fear and loss of control can even extend to being afraid of the cure itself, which is a vaccine. With the microchips, I just can't conceive of how you'd actually do it, you know, sticking a microchip into some liquid that you'd then get put into the arm. I wonder if what people are are worried about is the fact that some of the technology that's being used to develop these vaccines, the so-called use of mRNA, which is just a protein. It's not a microchip. It's just a protein that exists in our bodies already. Messenger RNA is what it's called. And that stimulates a cell to produce the spike protein of COVID-19. And that's what causes the immune system to have memory and remember the COVID-19. The last thing to say, which is really important, of course, is that with any vaccine, COVID-19 vaccines are no exception, 
the sort of stuff that you're injecting, the um, proteins that you're injecting, they actually disappear. They're cleared by the immune system, but in the process of being cleared, the immune system retains memory. So nothing that you're getting injected with the COVID-19 vaccine actually stays in your body. Hmm, that's so fascinating. I've had quite a few people say to me, I've got some underlying health issues like uh, autoimmune diseases and so I don't want to get the vaccine just yet because I'm really worried that it's going to either trigger that autoimmune disease that I already have or cause one. What would you say to that? Well, it's very common. It's very common and, and my patients say that to me as well. The most important thing to remember is if you've got an autoimmune disease, you've already got a dysregulated immune system. It's not quite functioning as it should. And oftentimes, you need to be on things to suppress that immune system. Now, if you get COVID-19 and you're on medications to suppress your immune system with an autoimmune disease, then your chance of going to intensive care and becoming very, very unwell is much, much higher than someone without an autoimmune disease. So far from being a reason not to take the vaccine, it's actually one of the major reasons that you should take the vaccine to give your body whatever extra protection it can to fight COVID-19. It's not going to trigger things, say, like glandular fever or, say, a thyroid condition or Hashimoto's or anything like that? No, no. And the other thing to remember is that we've had trials of tens of thousands of people. We've had real-life experience with now actually hundreds of millions of people. There is so much scrutiny on this by people and scientists who work with the Therapeutic Goods Administration, what we call our pharmacovigilance programs, where we're seeking reports actively from doctors and patients about what happens to them after a COVID-19 vaccination. And we haven't seen any signal at all that it increases autoimmune disease, keeping in mind that that pharmacovigilance program is so good that it's detected a complication that only occurs in three in 100,000 people, which is, of course, the AstraZeneca blood clots. So if Hashimoto's um, thyroiditis or autoimmune diseases were happening, we would know about it. And there are some people, even though they form a smaller portion of the medical community, who believe that in addition to vaccinations, that Australia should be considering treatment options, as I guess as a two-pronged approach. You get, I guess you treat and you avoid. And at the risk of sounding like Craig Kelly, things like ivermectin showed initial promise. And I know that there's a large study being done in the UK into this. Why aren't we both vaccinating and treating? We are doing both. It's just that we're doing it with drugs that work, not ones that don't work. And with respect to Mr. Kelly, he's not alone in the world in looking at ivermectin. And again, these things are anchored in some degree of truth. So ivermectin does actually appear to work or has a plausible mechanism of working within a test tube against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. That's the first stage of drug development. Then you put it into a body and the human body is so complex that different things happen to it than it does in the laboratory. And so it's been proven time and time again that ivermectin has no effect on the disease course of SARS-CoV-2. But by contrast, there are a lot of medications that we have now that do. Dexamethasone, very simple steroid that people get as soon as they have to come into hospital and go on to oxygen, and that reduces the inflammation associated with the disease. And then there's a new drug called citrovimab, That's what we call a monoclonal antibody. And just to explain that, you inject an antibody into um, a patient who's not been vaccinated. 
And it sort of binds to the cells that have SARS-CoV-2 and essentially spotlights them for the immune system to come and clear it up before it can cause too much damage. That's just turned up in the national medical stockpile. And we've, in fact, given our first dose of it here in the ACT. It's interesting that you mentioned that steroid. My sister-in-law, unfortunately, is currently in hospital and she has been administered that steroid. Another thing which is quite close to home, my parents are in their 60s, they currently have COVID and it's obviously a very stressful time for our family and many people around us are now saying things like or asking, do they need to get vaccinated given they would have some sort of immunity given that COVID's in their body? We still think it's important to be vaccinated after having an episode of COVID. And in fact, if you do, there's a couple of things that give you an advantage. Natural immunity is very useful to any sort of condition and is usually a little bit better than vaccine-induced immunity. So if you get SARS-CoV-2, you recover from your episode of COVID and then you get a vaccine, then you've got a really potent, strong immune system for any future exposures. The other thing which is not quite proven but looks like it's emerging is that people who have symptoms of long COVID The range is so wide in the studies from sort of one in 100 all the way up to one in 10 and some studies even higher. But people who have those symptoms of fatigue and brain fog, they've been found to get better after getting a vaccine. So they get COVID, they get long COVID symptoms, then they get a vaccine and their symptoms suddenly get a bit better, which is really interesting and worthy of future study. That's so encouraging. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, it really is. So I'm lucky enough here in Queensland, I've been double dosed. I've had two shots of Pfizer. One of the things I've wondered myself is what happens if the virus now mutates? Does that mean that I am no longer covered? What happens? So the virus mutates when there's lots and lots of cases in the world. So that's why it's so important that we actually get vaccine out there to low and middle income nations so that we can reduce the amount of circulating virus. If the virus mutates in the spike protein, which is the major part of the virus that our immune system recognises, there is a possibility that the current vaccines may not be as effective for those variants. But the good news is that all the variants that are circulating at the moment, we call them variants of concern, including the Delta variant, are fully susceptible to the vaccine and there's been no change in the effectiveness of it. things we're also keen to explore is what happens next. You know, so much talk has been about, you know, 16 plus population and getting to that double jabbed rate of 70 or 80 percent. But we know it doesn't end there. The next thing that people are considering, particularly overseas, these conversations are further along, is vaccinations for children. How safe are they for our children? Antoinette, I don't think there's any reason to suspect that they won't be safe. But There's two important things here. The first one is that we have based all our decision-making around looking at the science and looking at the trials and looking at tens, if not hundreds of thousands of volunteers getting these jabs and and making sure that they're safe. And the trials in under-12s for a lot of the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, are, are still going on. It's actually important that we wait for those. There's a second element to it, which is about the general ethics of our vaccination campaign. And usually for a vaccine to be marketed, you need a beneficial effect for the individual and you need a beneficial effect for society. Now, if COVID's just causing a very mild disease in under 12s, all you're giving it for is to protect 
other people. And that's where we have to start to question whether it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. We just need to very clearly distinguish a benefit for kids. And at the moment, it's clear that even with the Delta variant, COVID is a very mild disease for under 12s. So we've got schools in New South Wales going back in late October. Um, We had a schools cluster up here in Queensland and and kids are back in the classroom again, albeit wearing masks. Um, Many people are saying, you know, should we be sending children out into the world unvaccinated? What are the real risks there? I think it's definitely going to be safe to do that because the number of children that are actually getting unwell with this is really quite small. If you look at the Sydney Kids Hospital Network, the main reason for admission is actually for children whose parents are really sick with COVID-19. And so the parents get crook, the kids can't get looked after, they've got COVID, but they're just not actually that unwell and they need somewhere to be looked after. The number of children who actually were admitted with respiratory conditions was only two, it might have gone up to three now, out of around about a thousand. Now that is a tiny um, proportion. None of those children have gone to intensive care and they've all been discharged well. One of the things I've been hearing about um, from overseas is anecdotal reports of teenagers in particular being hit with long COVID. Is that something we need to be worried about? Oh, look, I certainly think long COVID's a, a syndrome. As an infectious disease physician, I would see in a busy clinic probably one patient a week who's had a virus, this is before COVID times, who's had a virus that they haven't recovered from and they describe months of just not feeling right, doctor. So sometimes it's related to just viruses and the way humans respond to them. But this is a new virus and we need to understand how many people are truly being affected by long COVID. So I think it's an important thing for current and future study. I'm not sure it's a, a reason why we would not let schools back. Now, we do want to vaccinate over 12s. We know that, Atagi said that, but I think the real debate is whether we we vaccinate under 12s. There's not going to be much cause to keep under 12s away from school whilst we make that decision. Mm -hmm. That would be far too damaging for primary school aged children because I do think that decision on under 12s is probably many months away and we need to get them back to school. So what I'm hearing, and if this is a fair summary, when it comes to low COVID and teenagers, we just don't know yet. I think it exists. It definitely exists. We just don't know the proportion that it exists in. Now, if we consider that the studies are so wide ranging, some studies say one in 100 people get long COVID, some people say one in 10, we just don't have enough information. So it is an issue. I would suggest that the younger you are, the less of a problem it is, which is the case with all symptoms of COVID in including long COVID. Hey, how long are you covered for once you've had your two jabs? Is it something you're going to need to get updated every year, like the flu vaccine? What's the longevity of this? Well, this is the interesting and and somewhat sad thing for the Australian vaccine program and where we are now. It actually appears that the AstraZeneca vaccine gives you longer protection and you're less likely to need a booster or at least less likely to need it as quickly as we will with the Pfizer vaccines. I suspect people who've had Pfizer will need to consider boosters sooner, sometime in the next six to 12 months. This is something that Atagi's got a lot of focus on at the moment. We've also got to remember that there is um, a whole heap of people around the world in low middle income countries that haven't even had their first shot, let alone their booster shot. And the more we allow COVID to circulate in those communities, the more likely there will be to be a variant that is escaping the vaccine.
We also need to balance this need for boosters in in high-income countries with actual primary vaccination courses in low-middle-income countries. The vaccine rollout has been pretty terrible here. And what's to say the same won't be the case for boosters and the next phase of managing this terrible virus, given other, you know, OECD countries are well on into their journey of, if not administering, if not at least having those conversations about boosters? There's no doubt that we would have liked the rollout to happen faster. There've been hiccups, there've been booking errors, there's certainly been supply issues. You can imagine that every stage we get through, we're seeing things smoother and smoother and smoother. In fact, between state and federal governments in New South Wales, they're vaccinating amongst the highest rate that's ever been vaccinated during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I think some of those significant glitches early on are being really well ironed out and it'll just be part of our national immunisation program. So our national immunisation program pre-COVID, one of the most successful in the world, and I think that'll be the case for booster shots as well. And when people talk about hospitalisations in places like Israel and the UK, those those who may be vaccine hesitant, vaccine suspicious, right through to anti-vaxxer will say, people are still going to hospital. It shows the vaccines aren't working. But what can you tell me about those who are hospitalised and the severity of the illness once they're double jabbed? So it'll always be less than it otherwise was if you weren't vaccinated and the degree to which it's less is about 90%. So for someone who's older, say over 60, who might have smoked for most of their life, this could mean the difference between living and dying, the vaccine. So you could still go to intensive care, for sure you could. And that's no different to other viruses like influenza um, that we get vaccinated for. We don't get sort of sterilising immunity where you actually don't get the virus. You get what we would call an attenuated form of the virus where the disease severity is less. So it's got nothing to do with the vaccines working or not working. They're definitely working. It's that in some people who have a lot of other medical conditions, that risk reduction won't be enough and they will still go to ICU. And yes, some people may still die with the vaccine, but it'll be many, many hundreds, if not thousands times less. Thank you again for joining us. And um, I guess you must be getting a bit sick of answering these questions over and over again yourself. <laughs> oh, look, not at all happy. To, I think we're going to be doing it for a while yet. And um, I'm seeing the results of people not getting vaccinated on mm. COVID wards as, as I treat them as well. So I just uh, encourage every lister that we've got to get those vaccines. Um, Antoinette, uh, Katrina, get your families vaccinated. Mm. All those WhatsApp groups, we just need to get the message out there. So that was Dr Nick Coatsworth, who's the former Deputy Chief Medical Officer. We covered so much ground there, everything from booster shots to, you know, when you can get a jab after you've actually had COVID and just basically dispelling myths. I know as a journalist covering so many COVID stories, these are the the questions that I get asked by people, you know, just out in the community. And it's really nice to be able to provide some credible information to answer some of those questions. Listener.